Welcome to Fair Conversations. My name is Maria Latini. I'm the executive director of the Fair Initiative. We are continuing our conversations and dialogue around food system risks, particularly as it pertains to intensive animal agriculture. I'm delighted today to be joined by one of our FAIR members. Invesco is a global asset manager who manages over $1.4 trillion of assets under management. ESG has been a part of their DNA for over three decades now, and I'm really delighted to have them here because we recently collaborated on a white paper entitled Appetite for Change, Food, ESG, and the Nexus of Nature. So in our conversation today, we'll dive into the need for not only improved regulation, but also the impact of factory farming on biodiversity, consumer shifts, and much, much more. The content or views in this podcast do not constitute investment advice, and any views expressed are those of the contributor. Please join me in welcoming two of my colleagues um, who really have shown thought leadership in the food system, Dr. Henning Stein, Global Head of Thought Leadership, and Maria Lombardo, European Head of ESG Client Strategies. Hello. Hi. Hi, Maria. Very pleased to be here. So I thought I would start this conversation with a reference to the Nobel Prize winner, Richard Feynman, right? He was basically recognized for his work around quantum mechanics, but he often made comments around nature and this idea that there is a connectivity with the natural world. And, you know, this is, this is quite ironic as we're, we're here coming out of this catastrophic pandemic. It's quite striking, given we're actually in this age of incredible amounts of knowledge, innovation, technology. It really does highlight the fact that our relationship with nature is broken. So really, I I want to bring in Henning and, and, and Maria here, because your research really hones in on the interconnectedness of risks like climate change, biodiversity loss, extreme weather events and, and, and food crises. So I want to just ask, you know, what does this idea of interconnectedness mean to you? And, and maybe even what has the global pandemic taught us about this? Yes, I think the, the global uh, pandemic has really brought us to think about uh, this interconnectedness amongst uh, all the different factors that uh, have created this, this emergency. In fact, when we look at the disease, the interconnectedness is in the fact that the disease has been connected with the population growth and with the fact that our consumptions are becoming unsustainable. And there is a big link between the biodiversity change, the relationship that we we have created with all the natural elements, the climate change, and the way we are uh, conducting our business. So all these factors are totally interconnected. They are putting pressure on uh, nature and its resources and the fact that these resources are not infinite, but we only have one planet indeed. We reference to the World Economic Forum and uh, they have uh, looked at this hyper-connected risk. And on the top 10 risk, there are all risks really linked 
to nature. And so we need to look at them in their complexity and in the way they interact to each other. Yeah, I find that very interesting. Uh, what what you say about the interconnectivities of factors and the technological interconnectivity, I think that's that's a huge factor. And I see also this uh, rising awareness, right, among experts, among academics. But where I still see a gap is with policymakers at the moment, because I feel their their focus is really on a crisis management, so hygiene, uh, masks, uh, testing, vaccination is very front of center. But then this root cause of this debate, I think, is is more of a speciality at the moment, and uh, it has to become more mainstream, I think. I think they're both really good points, and it's quite telling that technology has yet to be able to bring us out of this situation as quickly as, as we would have hoped. You know, the pandemic has been a huge global economic crisis, but also a very personal issue. You know, and I think food is also a really personal issue and the risks associated with it and, and the risks that need to be managed or are, are currently being mismanaged could potentially also be catastrophic. People really didn't think much about food and, and how food was created or produced or where it came from, you know, in the past. And now we're looking at a whole range of risks associated with how we're producing, particularly animals for food. And those risks are notably financially material to the bottom line of companies. And therefore, the risk-reward profile from an investor perspective, right? And I think, you know, that's really at the core of what FAIR has been looking at over the past five years. You know, we're looking at a range of risks associated with how we're producing animals for food. And maybe five years ago, all of these risks may not have been that evident. I mean, I'm interested to really hear of, about your view of how our food system and particularly intensive animal agriculture in, in this discussion really play into this idea of a complex web of, of risks. I, I look at it from the eyes of, of a practitioner and uh, what are we doing as, uh, as investors uh, to, to really uh, consider these elements and this risk within our assessment. How do we do this uh, as investors? I think we need to give it a, a total and equal consideration that we are now giving to climate change and to see the biodiversity in both its risks and also its opportunity to change. What, what does it mean really changing the habits of consumptions and changing the way we are producing and create more sustainable ways in, in, the, in the agricultural methodology and, and looking at deforestation in a way that uh, will have to be uh, reduced and really support locally on the smallholder farmers or, or the community on how they really uh, have an important role themselves rather than the industrial productions in, in agriculture. So there are so many themes. I'm just throwing them on the table. <laughs> no, no. I think that's one of the things that really comes out in your paper that not only is, you know, this idea of nexus of nature can really hone in on the fact that, you know, we are at this sort of precipice of, you know, destruction, you know, but it also can be a network for positive change, right? And I think just because we're at this point in time where we're realizing this interconnectedness, and particularly, as, you know, we, we talk about, you know, 
of equity, like you mentioned, you know, just transition, thinking about how we transition some of the countries, farmers, et cetera, is, is a really important discussion to have. No, I, I totally agree uh, with what Maria uh, just said. I would just say, you know, you mentioned intensive uh, farming and my personal view on this is it should be outlawed full stop, right? So it doesn't have a place, but it's something that's very close to my heart. And I'm a firm believer in, in animal rights and um, many means of food production really ignore the fact that animals have feelings, right? They are living, they are thinking creatures, pigs are very smart, yet they are condemned to a production line of, of misery. And uh, then as an investor and, you know, as a sentient uh, being, I'm, I'm not really prepared to support this kind of activity. And Ultimately, the, the main risk for me is we invest in basically something as unsustainable. You take the example of Brazil, right? Um, over there, we see a continued failure by policymakers, by the meat processors to really guarantee that cattle from rogue ranchers linked to those environmental destruction, even legal violations are, are then excluded from the supply and such failures simply contribute to the industrial uh, meat sector's continued role as a as a leading global driver, I would say, of land use emissions, of biodiversity loss and social injustice. And uh, of particular concern, I think, is the potential for cattle linked to really deliberate or even illegal use of fire to find their way into the international market. And uh, to re-emphasize, I mean, these policies and practices have really detrimental impact on climate change, biodiversity, waste pollution, deforestation, and human health. So even if you don't care about animal welfare, you can care about your own health, right? And what we have is, I think, a classic encapsulation of uh, responsible investing, it's a case of, uh, you know, squaring moral duty with fiduciary duty. And the, the opportunities really lie then in doing the right thing, bringing about positive, lasting change. And in the end, I think it underlines what, what I've said many times in the past. We have to save animals to save ourselves, right? We're seeing more and more consumers sharing your views in terms of understanding how animals are being treated as they're being produced for food. And that's shifting and shaping um, market trends. Um, we're also seeing consumers understand how animals are contributing to climate change and, and environmental destruction. Um, and they're making choices on the back of that. And I think what has happened as a result of the pandemic is you're seeing individuals and consumers also understand that how we're producing animals can contribute to future pandemics. And we know three out of the next four diseases in humans are going to come from animals. And so this idea of biosecurity risk, again, goes right back to the welfare of the animals in this system. So I think there's a real growing awareness of how animals are treated in these systems, um, what we have to do to, for example, support their immune systems so that they can grow quickly but healthily at the same time without overuse of antibiotics, for example. We want to create healthy immune systems because there is research out there that suggests that a healthy, happy animal, even in an intensive um, farming system, is actually healthier and potentially producing more nutritious 
protein as well. So there's no reason why animals shouldn't be allowed to exhibit natural behaviors and shouldn't be healthy, um, both mentally and physically in these systems, starting right now, right? We have the means to do it. We have the technology to do it. We have the understanding to do it. It's just a matter of changing some of these systems. It's actually quite horrifying to consider how these policies, how these practices help to spread the disease, as you say, at almost every turn, right? And uh, for example, we know animals are kept in this close confinement, which is the main problem, and we know they they suffer terrible overcrowding. And if you can change that, I would agree, you could make even intensive farming probably a little bit better because they become less stressed, as you say, right? And all these factors, I think, make disease transmission easier. So does, you know, life transportation. We haven't really discussed that. That's another horrendous practice. And some countries have outlawed that, but uh, it's still there. And uh, it's not really declared on your package that you buy in the supermarket. And I think we also need to understand, you know, many of these diseases, as you say, take the form of of superbugs, basically. And these are pathogens, just like COVID-19. And they can uh, be passed from animals to humans. And that's a hundred times worse than actually COVID-19 if a superbug like this becomes. uh, uh, And, you know, Bill Gates has talked about this a lot. And he obviously was right, right, about this topic um, of COVID. Zoonotic diseases. (laughs) In in general, exactly. And and this means we we shouldn't rule out the possibility uh, of that next pandemic emerging from you know, supposedly state-of-the-art slaughterhouses. And that is something not so widely discussed. In in our circle here, we are experts. We, we, we're really into that topic, but it's not something that you read in the in the daily news. I think it's worth just reflecting on, on why antibiotics are used in the first place. I mean, today, above all, they're, they're used to promote, as you say, growth and to make uh, uh, livestock bodies more standardized, and and that is terrible, and and that's just because of profits, right? They're just uh, another illustration of, I think, how we treat nature with contempt. This last sentence that Henning said about it's because of profit, I think that's quite important to to say. And uh, again, in, uh, what what can we do as investors? And it is this real concept of looking at what we consider the double materiality or the dynamic materiality, which means that these risks, these elements of consideration when we look at uh, producing, so if we shift the conversation more towards the supply area from the consumption area, what is it that we need to consider? Is this what we call it in our jargon, the double materiality or dynamic materiality that takes into account the profit or the financial impact, I should say, but also takes into account the protection of nature within a diff- an enlarged concept of materiality. And I have to say here that FAIR is is really helping us in that because even within the analysis of uh, uh, the ESG factors, we have a very good guideline on what to see as material, uh, your 28 material ESG issues that are fitting into the environment, the social and the governance are something that we need to continue considering when we assess investment. 
And also in our allocation of capital, if we again look at uh, uh, using our power of allocation of capital to engage with the companies uh, and discuss about these teams, but also wanting from them evidence that there is a change, that there is a, a sustainability uh, orientation and change in their in the practice that can no longer be accepted. So that's where we can exercise our weight in a way and, and then from from our investors, really our stewardship duty. I suppose to your point, you know, what FAIR intends to do and what we've done on sort of both ends of the food value chain is try to speak to not only the suppliers, which is, you know, something that we're mentioning, we're talking with about the actual animal producers who, you know, we believe can still do much better and much more in order to safeguard the 28 ESG risks that you highlighted. But also this is an entire, you know, huge value chain, right? The downstream companies, the food manufacturers, retailers, restaurants are some of the companies that are really most widely held in investor portfolios, right? And that discussion about how, you know, animal protein feeds into their product portfolios is critically important as well. I mean, how are you guys thinking about the entire value chain of, of food? And, you know, is it from a sort of trends perspective for on, a, on a consumer basis? Are you looking at sort of product portfolios or are you honing just in on what you know are some of the key risks with the producers themselves? What has to change is really the consumer habits on one end and the production on the other. Where can we influence is influencing the production. But as you well said, is not to be taken as a silos because it is within a, an entire value chain, an entire supply chain. Even when I'm investing in products that have nothing to do with food, but they have to do with the raw material that I'm using. And this raw material have an impact in terms of the use of land and this land have an impact in terms of the uh, repercussion on other use of this land or uh, uh, depletion of the land itself that are creating then uh, uh, direct impact on uh, on the food. So we are looking at it, uh, trying to identify certainly what complement our current analysis on the ESG factors and uh, including more and more factors. As I said, FAIR is uh, extremely helpful in the analysis that not only you have done on the ESG factor themselves, but also on your approach uh, and producer index uh, uh, that is giving us a very good direct reference on the companies and where they stand about it and how we can then scientifically engage with them with real evidence uh, when we sit down uh, in our conversation. So we are looking at incrementing uh, element of analysis and incrementing elements and questions for us to engage more directly on these thematics. You know, I appreciate your, your reference to the protein producer index. You know, we look, for example, at the protein producer index at nine risk factors, but we also focus in on one opportunity factor that we haven't really explored here today, and that's sustainable proteins or this idea of, you know, more resilient perhaps, you know, alternatives to meat, whether it be plant-based or, you know, cultivated meat, et cetera. Do you think about that either from an investment perspective or a personal perspective in terms of, you know, uh, trends? Yeah, I think it all comes together, right? I mean, it's a, it's a combination, right? If you will, you have investors, you have consumers, you have policymakers, 
And then you have the protein producers. And right now we see animal welfare is not an explicit ESG factor in the hierarchy, right? I would love to see it moving it up, right? It's it's more of a sub-factor under sustainability. But now we see consumers shifting, right? And it makes it so interesting also from an investment perspective. And if I work in a supermarket here in Zurich where veganism, vegetarianism is very uh, uh, eminent, preeminent, you can see that, right? The supermarkets offering a much broader range. And if I then take, uh, like the other weekend, I bought this uh, plant chicken nuggets, right? I give that to 100 people and 99 will not distinguish uh, this from, from real meat. And I think that's progress. And that's where you see the new players emerging rapidly now because they see that it's a scalable offering. And on the other side, you see the incumbents also doing a lot. So I don't want to say uh, every big uh, food company is is a devil. That's not true. They, they're doing that because they see also uh, an ESG factor on the board level because it becomes a board uh, topic for companies uh, to discuss that. And it becomes a, a big market for them, right? And that's where you see the, the reduction in price. So I remain hopeful, right? And it's more than just hopeful. I mean, I, I do think that a lot, and you mentioned this, right? The large global food manufacturers and retailers, for one, are, you know, initially, they're looking at this because they see it as a as a real growth center. And if you talk to the fast food chains, you know, all of them have plant-based food offerings. They, they see this as a, a key consumer focal area. And I think you make an important point, Henning, and maybe, you know, when we we sort of round this out of, you know, what steps do we need to take to have there be a more um, equitable, um, resilient food system? Do you guys have any sort of final comments in terms of what we actually need to see to to push transformation in this sector? I think you're absolutely right in terms of the incentive that uh, these corporates need to be having uh, from government, from the regulation. There are lots of very big ideas and plans and uh, we are all pushed to direct our investment into uh, the impact that the money might can make. And I'm referring to the uh, sustainable development goal number two on hunger. And yes, we can cover that, but in that sustainable way, as we are saying on the SDG 12 on the production and consumption, how can we be incentivized? To do this, as we are seeing with with climate change, there is a need of data, there is a need of disclosure, there is a need of corporates working with investments, but also this need is uh, cost for everyone. And so uh, the more and more is not just the competition driving it, but also we are all in a place where the regulations are giving the right framework on one end and the right incentive to facilitate that. I, I totally agree. And uh, this is where I see the opportunity, right? Investors, shareholders are starting to step up, right, um, next to consumers. And then you, you see that overall uh, thing is shifting. But we need regulation. We need stronger regulation. Uh, policymakers are hesitant because they fear, you know, they're not going to get reelected if they go against barbecue of people doing their barbecue on Sunday, right? I mean, uh, you heard that discussed in Germany. And uh, also shifting their subsidies. If you look at the huge uh, subsidies in the agricultural sector in the EU, it's still going to the traditional farming. And at the same time, they come up with the Green Deal that goes into green tech and into the right areas that help uh, curb climate change. 
And I think uh, the same thinking needs to apply for these traditional sectors. And I'm hopeful that this is this is going to happen. You know, there's eight states in the U.S. that have cage-free legislation. It looks like the EU is now thinking about, you know, animal welfare legislation when it pertains to EU Green Deal farm to fork, as well as animal transport. Do you want to unpick that a little bit? Is there something that we should talk about there, do you think? Yeah, I think it's all about visibility of what's going on to consumers, to investors that isn't there, right? I mean, we we create this in the asset management industry um, to a large extent through the help of, of organizations like FAIR, but it needs to be on every package. There needs to be a declaration what's going on and there needs to be much more transparency. And I always compare that to the situation we had in the 19th century with horses in the street, right? When they were abused and overworked, um, people saw that directly. It was in front of them. And that then shifted pressure on changing the law, right? And now we have this intensive farming that's in the countryside, in big plants, and we're not seeing that anymore, right? So the more we see about that, I think the more people will will change their minds. Yeah, and I think that's an excellent point to end this conversation with. I'd really like to thank you both for being here with me today. I also like to remind our listeners that the white paper entitled Appetite for Change, Food, ESG, and the Nexus of Nature is available on Invesco.com for all financial professionals. You've been listening to Fair Conversations, a podcast about the latest topics transforming our global food system. You can find our podcast on various channels, including Spotify, Apple, and of course, on the Fair website. If you enjoyed this podcast, I would encourage you to please leave us a rating and a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at, at Fair Initiative and visit our website at fair.org, where you can sign up to our newsletter to be kept up to date with our latest research. We hope you'll join us next time for more conversations about intensive animal agriculture, global protein supply chains, and the future of food for investors.